Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 12. Well, as we have heard directly from Amulek in the two previous chapters, Alma chapter 10 and Alma chapter 11, we will now hear directly from Alma in Alma chapters 12 and 13. More broadly speaking, it is clear that Alma is also speaking to the people of Ammonihah in these two chapters. Speaking more specifically, however, it seems that he is in a formal setting, uh, something approximating a courtroom setting. One would guess this, of course, because it is lawyers who are speaking to Amulek and Alma in this sequence that extends from Alma chapters 10 through Alma chapter 13. There was a point earlier in the book of Mosiah when Abinadi appeared among the people, and they essentially apprehended him and took him to the authorities, and then he appeared in a courtroom setting. We wonder then if the same thing occurred here for Amulek and Alma. It does seem that Alma spoke more generally to the people of Ammonihah in Alma chapter 9. And then, of course, Amulek takes over and speaks in Alma chapter 10. And at some point, as I've mentioned earlier, there seems to be a transition where they are then speaking before the lawyers. In this setting, of course, one lawyer comes to the fore. And that, as we have already learned, is Zeezrom. Through the spirit of prophecy, as it was described, and no doubt through the spirit of discernment, which we'll have an opportunity to talk about as we move through the text of this chapter, Amulek seemed to be immediately aware of Zeezrom's true intentions as he questioned him in the previous chapter. We actually read about this at the opening of this chapter in Alma chapter 12, where it says that Amulek had caught Zeezrom in his lying and and deceiving to destroy him. We can see from this then that Zeezrom had the very specific intention of destroying Amulek. This, of course, is reflective of the pattern that we have discussed previously that was shown by Laman and Lemuel as they were confronted with prophetic correction from their brother Nephi, and also the people in that parallel kingdom of the the land of Nephi who were under King Noah's leadership, who rejected the corrective words of Abinadi, and they sought to destroy him. This seems to be the first impulse of the natural man when confronted with corrective prophetic words. Destroying the messenger and rejecting his words is a tactic I've spoken of previously. This is the path that is so often followed instead of the straight and narrow path of repentance when any of us are confronted by the corrective words of a prophet. At this point, before we go through our um, flyover summary of this chapter, I'd just like to point out another dichotomy, and that is that there seems to be another option when one is confronted with an enemy. The most intuitive option to the natural man 
when confronted by an enemy is to seek his destruction. And Alma and Amulek posed as enemies to these people of Ammonihah. However, Zeezrom most certainly presents as an enemy to Alma and Amulek in these chapters, and we are shown the other alternative in this dichotomy. In this instance, we see that instead of Zeezrom being destroyed, instead he was transformed. We wondered if Zeezrom's final question in the previous chapter, as he confronted Amulek, was actually asked in earnest, or whether it was also part of his strategy to trap Amulek. Of that, I don't think we can be sure. However, when we come to Alma chapter 12, we begin truly to witness the beginnings, at least, of Zeezrom's transformation. The chapter begins, as we will read shortly, with a description of Zeezrom's intentions, once again, to destroy Amulek and, of course, Alma. Then in verse 3, Alma speaks directly to Zeezrom, and his language is very condemnatory. He says, Now, Zeezrom, seeing that thou hast been taken in thy lying and craftiness, for thou hast not lied unto men only, but thou hast lied unto God. Then he says in verse 4, And thou seest that we know that thy plan was a very subtle plan as to the subtlety of the devil. This is how Alma's words begin to Zeezrom in this chapter, and we might intuitively imagine, when we think about this dichotomy, where an enemy can either be destroyed or transformed, we might think that so far what Alma is saying is a prelude to Zeezrom's destruction. However, amazingly, Alma gives Zeezrom space and leaves the possibility open for sincere repentance for Zeezrom. And at this point in verse 8, we find that Zeezrom began to inquire of them diligently. And at this point, he asks a follow-up question to Amulek's remarkable teachings that were given at the end of the previous chapter. Alma answers Zeezrom's earnest question, and in so doing, he dispenses beautiful doctrine. Then at that point, Zeezrom will effectively exit the stage of the narrative. We'll read of Zeezrom again in Alma chapter 14 when he sees, uh, when we see what his reaction was to Alma's words as he continues through Alma chapter 12, chapter 13. Uh, and then we will see that Zeezrom's transformation is made complete in Alma chapter 15, where he is actually healed from the infirmities that beset him as a result of this entire experience. And he, he went with the believers of Ammonihah to the land of Sidon. So, of course, we'll read about all of this later. And, in fact, that still will not be the end of the Zeezrom story as it's given to us in Mormon's abridgment of the large plates of Nephi, because we'll discover in Alma chapter 31 that Zeezrom is one of the missionaries that helps transform those believers who are willing to be transformed among the Zoramites. So that gives us an opportunity to think about Zeezrom. I think we can see that he's a remarkable example of an enemy that, instead of being destroyed, can actually be transformed. And Zeezrom, of course, became a great ally to Alma and Amulek. This clearly, I think, from the scriptures is the Lord's way, and whenever it's possible, this transformation can occur. Once again, it stands in sharp contrast to the way of Laman and Lemuel, the way of the people of Noah, and the way of the people of Ammonihah to destroy their enemies as they presented to them. Well, with those orienting thoughts as an introduction, let's look now at the structure of Alma chapter 12. We can see in verses 1 and 2 
that now the speaker will be Alma, but the context is the same because it is Alma and Amulek who are speaking to Zeezrom. So now it's Alma's turn to speak to Zeezrom, and we see that in verses 1 and 2. Now the words of Alma himself come through in verse 3, and this section extends through verse 7, where Alma identifies Zeezrom's intent and explains that it's manifested by the spirit of prophecy. Alma even goes so far as to say in verse 3 that thy thoughts are made known unto us by his spirit. This, of course, will give us the opportunity in a moment to discuss the spirit of discernment, this great feature, uh, this great gift of the spirit that we, like Alma, can be blessed with during those times when we need it. Now, in verses 8 through 18, this is where we see this miraculous shift in Zeezrom. He begins here to question Alma and Amulek, really, uh, he begins to question them in sincerity. And at this point, Alma has the opportunity to expand upon the previous teachings of Amulek. In so doing, it seems that Alma is seeing the very best in Zeezrom and still providing for the possibility that Zeezrom can indeed accept what it is that he's teaching, repent, and embrace the gospel message of Jesus Christ and fully transform. Alma knows that this is possible as well as anyone does. He clearly does not feel that these beautiful and enlightening doctrinal teachings are wasted on Zeezrom as he gives them to him here in this section. Now we know that, of course, that there were others who were in attendance, and in verse 19 they're referred to as the people that says that they began to be more astonished. So at this point, it's when, as I mentioned earlier, Zeezrom kind of exits the stage. And now someone new speaks to Alma. This is a character named Antiona, as he is introduced in verse 20. It says that he was a chief ruler among them. This seems to be an escalation, perhaps, or a movement up in the hierarchical chain of command among the lawyers who were addressing Alma and Amulek. I think I inaccurately um, referred to Zeezrom a few chapters back as being chief among the lawyers who were there. That's not exactly the language as it's presented in the text. We can only tell from that that um, Zeezrom was very talented in his skill of framing others uh, through the law and getting gain as a consequence. But now that it's clear that Zeezrom is no longer following this motive, he was presumably dismissed by the court. And now someone else is trying to frame Alma. And that again is Antiona, who is a chief ruler among them. Now with that said, Alma still provides for the possibility that Antiona is a sincere questioner just like he did for Zeezrom, although there's no evidence for uh, this idea. And it seems most likely that Antiona was antagonistic in his intentions as well. In any event, in verse 21, Antiona asks about the meaning of a scripture that discusses cherubim and a flaming sword being on the east of the Garden of Eden, and how it is that those objects uh, prevent one from living forever in their current state. And of course, I should say, prevent Adam and Eve from living in their current state. Alma will go on then to answer Antiona in this question. Uh, He will expand upon the fall 
and the plan of redemption. What follows is a great scriptural treasure for us uh, right up until the present day. And we find that in verses 22 through 37. And so that will bring us all the way to the end of this chapter. Poetically, just as this brings us to the end of the chapter, the last concept that Alma introduces as he comes to the end is to enter into the rest of God. He'll refer to that concept in Alma chapter 13 as well as his teachings continue. Well, now to go to a reading of the text, I'll begin first with some commentary by Ogden and Skinner, who comment more generally on this two-chapter section of Alma chapter 12 and Alma chapter 13. Alma expounded a complete curriculum for salvation. God, the creation, the fall, the atonement, agency, revelation, the plan of redemption, including faith, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, the foreknowledge of God, foreordination, the high priesthood, ordinances, covenant people, sanctification, resurrection, and judgment. Alma taught such elevated doctrines because there was at least one soul, Zeezrom, who would respond to those deeply meaningful doctrines and change his behavior forever, not to mention the many other believers who would suffer martyrdom because of their unwavering conversion to Alma's teachings. We'll read about that, of course, in Alma chapter 14. The doctrines of God have power to change people's hearts and minds. Verse 1. Now Alma, seeing that the words of Amulek had silenced Zeezrom, for he beheld that Amulek had caught him in his lying and deceiving to destroy him, and seeing that he began to tremble under a consciousness of his guilt, he opened his mouth and began to speak unto him, and to establish the words of Amulek, and to explain things beyond, or to unfold the scriptures beyond that which Amulek had done. Now, of course, Alma is going to do the same for us as readers, and so we read that with great curiosity when he says unfold beyond the things that Amulek had taught, especially since in the previous chapter, Alma had revealed such, Amulek, excuse me, had revealed mysteries relative to resurrection and restoration. We also can plainly see in this verse the reason for Zeezrom's trembling at the end of the previous chapter. We're being told here that it was under a consciousness of his guilt. This, of course, is an important prerequisite to being taught and places one on the path that we've talked about previously, the path of repentance, which can be painful and difficult, humiliating, but, of course, is liberating as we access the transformational power of Jesus Christ. The Doctrine and Covenants, section 6, verse 11, says, And if thou wilt inquire, thou shalt know mysteries which are great and marvelous. Therefore thou shalt exercise thy gift, that thou mayest find out mysteries, that thou mayest bring many to the knowledge of the truth, yea, convince them of the error of their ways. Something similar is said in verse 44 of Doctrine and Covenants, section 18, And by your hands I will work a marvelous work among the children of men, unto the convincing of many of their sins, that they may come unto repentance, and that they may come unto the kingdom of my Father. So this is what's happening to Zeezrom here. Verse 2, Now the words that Alma spake unto Zeezrom were heard by the people round about, for the multitude was great, and he spake on this wise. So as I mentioned previously, it's hard to know exactly what the setting is here because it seems somewhat formal, as though Alma and Amulek may have been taken from the public square into some sort of a courtroom setting. Yet here we can see that there were 
there or there was a great multitude uh, that was looking on on this process. So now here are Alma's words, verse three. Now Zeezrom, seeing that thou hast been taken in thy lying and craftiness, for thou hast not lied unto men only, but thou hast lied unto God. For behold, he knows all thy thoughts, and thou seest that thy thoughts were made known unto us by his Spirit. Before moving further into Alma's words, I want to read this from Thomas Arvaleta. He said, Zeezrom was silenced by the truth. His deception and subsequently his guilt were exposed. The psalmist wrote, and this is in Psalm 31, verse 18, Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Peter wrote to the saints in his day, and this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The silence of Zeezrom also reveals a positive nature about his character. He was open to admit his guilt. His heart was not closed to the truth. He went from accusing to inquiring, from inquiring to an exceptional servant of the Lord. And now here's a quote from the Reynolds and Sojal commentary on the Book of Mormon. Alma, perceiving that Zeezrom had been silenced by the words of Amulek, and that Zeezrom was caught in the trap he had set for Amulek, and further that the lies of Zeezrom, seeking to destroy the missionaries, were brought to naught by the Holy Spirit, began more fully to explain to Zeezrom the scriptures pertaining to the atonement of the Son of God, his resurrection, and salvation in God's kingdom. Amulek had opened new vistas to Zeezrom's vision, and now Alma enlarged Zeezrom's prospect by quoting the words of other prophets about whom Zeezrom already knew. While Alma spoke directly into Zeezrom's ears, his words were heard by numbers of the multitude who had gathered about them, not in anger, nor in the spirit of reprisal, but for a moment Alma, whom Zeezrom accused, became the accuser. Alma let the great throng that clustered around them know that Zeezrom had misled them by his lying, and had not only lied to them, but to God, who knew all his innermost thoughts. Alma drew to Zeezrom's attention, and thus to that of the multitude, the fact that Zeezrom's thoughts were made known to the missionaries by God's Spirit, which was in them. Zeezrom could not hide his thoughts and his designs against the servants of God by covering up his intentions in robes of public service, which he attempted so to do. Now verse 4, returning to Alma's words, And thou, speaking to Zeezrom, seest that we know that thy plan was a very subtle plan. As to the subtlety of the devil, for to lie and to deceive this people that thou mightest set them against us, to revile us and to cast us out. Now this was a plan of thine adversary, and he hath exercised his power in thee. A tremendous piece of insight there, as Zeezrom probably felt that he was acting as a free agent. We might remember what we read at the very end of Alma chapter 3, where we read that a man receives wages from that spirit that he listeth to obey. The truth is that the adversary was exercising his power through Zeezrom, and whether Zeezrom fully appreciated it or not, he was being an agent of the adversary in this thing. Now Alma continues, Now I would that ye should remember that what I say unto thee, I say unto all. And of course, all are present, or a large multitude is present of the people of Ammonihah. And behold, I say unto you, all, that this was a snare of the adversary, which he has laid to catch this people that he might bring you into subjection unto him, that he might encircle you about with his chains, 
that he might chain you down to everlasting destruction according to the power of his captivity. Now, there are many present here who know that they had the intention of laying a snare for Alma and Amulek and catching them and taking them to the eventual sentence that we read a few chapters ago of either uh, imprisonment or execution. So these people thought that they were the ones doing the snaring. And now we have Alma teaching them very carefully that they are the ones that are caught in a snare, and it's a snare of the adversary. There's a great deal of insight in all of that to consider. This is from President James E. Faust. He said, I think we will witness increasing evidence of Satan's power as the kingdom of God grows stronger. I believe Satan's ever-expanding efforts are some proof of the truthfulness of this work. In the future, the opposition will be more subtle and more open. It will be masked in greater sophistication and cunning, but it will also be more blatant. Some of Satan's most appealing lines are, everyone does it. If it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's all right. If you feel all right about it, it's okay. Or, it's the end thing to do. These subtle entreaties make Satan the great imitator, the master deceiver, the arch counterfeiter, and the great forger. Now, verse 7. Now, when Alma had spoken these words, Zeezrom began to tremble more exceedingly, for he was convinced more and more of the power of God, And he was also convinced that Alma and Amulek had a knowledge of him, for he was convinced that they knew the thoughts and intents of his heart. For power was given unto them that they might know of these things according to the spirit of prophecy. When we went through the flyover summary of this chapter a few moments ago, we can see that Zeezrom is going to be relieved of his duty, essentially, and Antiona will take over the questioning. It's clear here that as Zeezrom is is trembling, that this would have been visible to, to others besides Alma and Amulek. Well, this is really remarkable that Alma and Amulek could tap into this knowledge that God had of the intentions of Zeezrom and the thoughts and intents of his heart. And again, that's, uh, that's the, the, the verbiage that's used in verse 7, is that they knew the thoughts and intents of Zeezrom's heart. So Daniel Ludlow once wrote in his Companion to Your Study of the Book of Mormon that this gift of discernment is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it is through the proper use of this gift that the evils and designs of wicked men are made known to the prophets of God. On another occasion, Ludlow wrote, Educators and social scientists have barely scratched the surface of the concept of extrasensory perception, and, in the main, they do not understand its principles. However, the scriptures and prophets have taught clearly that the Holy Spirit can reveal to our spirits the portion of the mind of God that enables us to detect the thoughts and motives of others. Note these pertinent statements from the scriptures. The words of Alma, Zeezrom, Thou hast not lied unto men only, but thou hast lied unto God. For behold, he knows all thy thoughts, and thou seest that thy thoughts are made known unto us by his Spirit. Now when Alma had spoken these words, Zeezrom began to tremble more exceedingly, for he was convinced more and more of the power of God. And he was also convinced that Alma and Amulek had a knowledge of him, for he was convinced that they knew the thoughts and intents of his heart, for power was given unto them that they might know of these things according to the spirit of prophecy. Please note, however, says Ludlow, that our access to the thoughts and intents of others is made possible only through the power of God's Spirit. This protection of privacy is also mentioned in regard to the Urim and Thummim. No man can look in them except he be commanded, 
lest he should look for that he ought not. And that comes from uh, those earlier teachings that we read in Mosiah chapter 8 when Ammon was speaking to Limhi. So now in verse 8, we hear from Zeezrom again, now that Alma has said these things and has fully revealed his intentions, and Zeezrom has come to tremble even further. Uh, it still seems to be Zeezrom's job to say something in this formal setting. His last question uh, was directed at Amulek and had to do with the nature of God. Now he's going to ask this of Alma, and this seems to show his his turning uh, fully to asking a question in sincerity. He says in verse 8, And Zeezrom began to inquire of them diligently that he might know more concerning the kingdom of God. And he said unto Alma, What does this mean which Amulek hath spoken concerning the resurrection of the dead, that all shall rise from the dead, both the just and the unjust, and are brought to stand before God to be judged according to their works? Now we can remember that at the end of chapter 11, that Amulek spoke very eloquently about the way that the body would be restored, the body and the spirit would be restored. He also spoke of the immediate judgment that would take place after this. So, of course, this is what Zeezrom wants to zero in on in those teachings from Amulek. Uh, In this, you can almost see that Zeezrom wants to know if there's still a chance for him now that he's become aware of his own guilt. Bakanki and Millet have written, We see in this verse an example of the marvelous transformation that can begin to take place because of the power of the word. Zeezrom only a short time before had asked baiting, trapping questions. Now that he is confronted by the power of God and having his sins laid open to view, his queries began to change to reflect a type of sincere inquiry after the truth. Now this from Hugh Nibley in his teachings of the Book of Mormon. Then Zeezrom began to tremble when Alma spoke, for power was given unto them that they might know of these things according to the spirit of prophecy. And Zeezrom began to inquire of them diligently that he might know more concerning the kingdom of God. Well, now there's been a turning point. He has changed his mind. They could see through him, and he knew it. So now he is going to ask some interesting questions, and he becomes a different man. It's very interesting that this top man, this most depraved person, is going to become a zealous missionary. Ogden and Skinner wrote, After Amulek concluded his testimony to Zeezrom, Alma stepped in to confirm the words of Amulek and to teach the scriptures beyond what Amulek had done. Alma taught a profound principle. God cannot be fooled by anyone's outward speech, for God knows a person's inward thoughts, feelings, and intents. In fact, we know that the thoughts and intents of the heart constitute one of the criteria by which all people will be judged, There's a phrase in Doctrine and Covenants section 137, verse 9, that confirms that. Except in circumstances like this one, when the Holy Spirit reveals to God's authorized servants the thoughts and intents of another, only God knows all the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Zeezrom had devised a very subtle plan as to the subtlety of the devil, quote-unquote. The word subtle is used several times in the scriptures to describe something that is deceptive, elusive, shadowy, ingenious, clever, cunning, sly, tricky, or crafty. All these terms characterize the evil one, whose constant effort is to entrap, ensnare, overpower, and destroy the souls of men and the work of God. Now Alma will provide Zeezrom with his answer, but he'll first preface his answer with this 
uh, incredibly important and enlightening teaching about the mysteries of God. So he says in verse 9, And now Alma began to expound these things unto him, saying, It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command, that they shall not only impart according to the portion of his word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give him. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual says President Joseph Fielding Smith explained that the mysteries of God are simply those divine principles of the gospel necessary for our salvation that are not understood by the world. Quote, The Lord has promised to reveal his mysteries to those who serve him in faithfulness. The gospel is very simple, so that even children at the age of accountability may understand it. Without question, there are principles which in this life we cannot understand, but when the fullness comes, we will see that all is plain and reasonable and within our comprehension. The simple principles of the gospel, such as baptism, the atonement, are mysteries to those who do not have the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord. That's out of Church History and Modern Revelation, again by Joseph Fielding Smith. The mysteries of God should not be confused with the unworthy pursuit of mysteries or things that God has not revealed. Speaking of this latter use of the word mysteries, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, explained, There is also a restricted and limited usage of the expression mysteries. It is more of a colloquial than a scriptural usage, and it has reference to that body of teachings in the speculative field, those things which the Lord has not revealed in plainness in this day. It is to these things that reference is made when the elders are counseled to leave the mysteries alone. Now this from Ogden and Skinner, and they actually pull from the McConkie and Millet commentary as they write this. Gospel scholars McConkie and Millet wrote, It is a remarkable thing how two people can be seated beside one another, hear exactly the same message preached, and come away with two different conclusions regarding the important the import of the declaration. To one listener, the presentation is as the gibberish of alien tongues, to another as manna from heaven. To one listener, the messenger is seen as weak and unpolished, the pronouncement as unimportant and unnecessary. To the second, the messenger seems to be fired with the power of Almighty God and his sermon deep and profound. Indeed, to some it is given to know the mysteries of God and to see the power of God resting upon his servants simply because they are prepared to so receive, because they are open to truth. What is a mystery to one man may not be a mystery to another. It is simply a matter of preparation, readiness, and receptivity. Those who are prepared, now Ogden Skinner are saying, who have proved themselves obedient and valiant, and who are determined to serve God at all costs, may receive sacred knowledge, make holy covenants, and participate in holy ordinances. This is referred to, Ogden and Skinner say, as the mysteries of godliness, or, and that's in Doctrine and Covenants section 63, verse 23, and the power of godliness, uh, as it is expressed in Doctrine and Covenants section 84, verses 19 through 20. Now here they continue. They, meaning these people who do this, are placed under a strict command not to divulge those most sacred things. There are many scriptural examples of this, such as 3 Nephi 26, 3 Nephi 27, 28, and also Doctrine and Covenants section 105. They do not go around talking about all they know. Some experiences are ineffable, so transcendently glorious that they defy human expression or description. Of these things it is not possible for man to speak. 
Some truths and experiences are not lawful for man to utter, in the sense that it is not permitted or appropriate to speak of them, except as led and directed by the Holy Spirit. Some special things are to be kept within the household of faith, among those who believe. Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants 63 and 64. Just as it would be unwise and dangerous to feed strong meat to infants, so also it is unwise and dangerous to provide deeper doctrines or sacred ordinances for public display. Too frequently those who encounter these things prematurely are unable to digest them properly and ultimately turn with bitterness against the very source of truth. In short, it matters a great deal not only what people are taught, but also when they are taught it. So I'd say that this very final statement by Ogden and Skinner kind of introduced a third notion. We heard from Joseph Fielding Smith, who explained that mysteries can be plain and simple things, but that are only understood through the receipt of revelation, and in that sense are very much within the grasp of a child. We then read of Bruce R. McConkie's statement that uh, mysteries, not as they are described scripturally, but more colloquially in our modern language, have to do with those things that are more speculative and that truly have not been revealed in plainness, and really that we should leave alone. Now, in this last sense, Ogden and Skinner are talking about a process, really, where there is an order in receiving truth, and that, as Paul said, milk should come before meat. This is a line upon line and a precept upon precept phenomenon, and it's something that maybe no one described more eloquently, really, than Alma did in the text that we're reading here. So he says in verse 10, And therefore he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given the greater portion of the word, until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God, until he know them in full. This shows us, I think, that there is more than an intellectual understanding that has to take place as we receive the word, And then we're made able to comprehend and receive more of the word. There's a behavioral component here. There's the the actions of the heart. In other words, there's repentance. And there is compliance. And there is aligning ourselves with the commandments of God as we receive them. And then we are given to know those mysteries or revelations of God until we know them in full. So in that sense, I think we can think about President Nelson's talk about growing in Revelation. Here's an interesting story from Ogden and Skinner. Brother Ogden's son Daniel was in Europe several years ago on an assignment from the United States government for three weeks to conduct interviews for top-secret clearance of U.S. military personnel and civilians, along with a few civilians from other countries. He described the interview questions in some detail, and in some respects, they are far more extensive than Latter-day Saints Temple Recommend interview. Before he sat down with a person, Daniel had in his possession the person's police records, national agency records, financial records, credit reports, and so on. He probed where the individuals had been and who they had been with for business or pleasure. He inquired if they had ever used drugs or alcohol, how much and how often, if they had ever been convicted of any crime, if they had ever been divorced, been involved in any sexual misconduct, had any extramarital affairs, or been guilty of any abuse. He had to have details of any and all debt the individual had, The searching questions were to establish their loyalty and honesty. The basic idea of the interview of each individual was to answer the question, can this person be trusted? What an interesting phenomenon from a gospel perspective. 
Isn't that exactly what will happen to you as you pass into the eternal worlds to be judged in regard to your earth life? Are you not here to be cleared for capacity and worthiness to receive all of the top secrets of godliness and to prove that you can be trusted to perform work similar to our Heavenly Father's? According to this verse in Alma, a person's worthiness to be entrusted with the mysteries of God is directly related to the hardness or softness of his heart. Living the gospel of Jesus Christ ensures that your heart will remain soft, pliable, and receptive to the greater portion of the word and to the eventual fullness of the mysteries of godliness. Now verse 11, And they that will harden their hearts, to them is given the lesser portion of the word, until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. And then they are taken captive by the devil and led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell. Robert J. Matthews has written, Alma explained the basis on which the gospel is taught to the human family, showing that the mysteries of God are made clear only to the faithful. Alma's words explain a principle that determines the extent to which the gospel is taught at any one time to any individual or group. It is a matter of readiness based upon the personal desires and preference of the receivers. Now, verse 12, And Amulek hath spoken plainly concerning death, and being raised from this mortality to a state of immortality, and being brought before the bar of God to be judged according to our works. Now, Zeezrom can see, and we can also see, how Alma is coming back to Zeezrom's question about judgment. But Alma first wanted to lay this foundation about hardening one's heart and receiving the word. Alma said, of course, that he would teach things that are beyond what it was that Amulek taught and that he would expand upon them. And so maybe this is a way of him telling Zeezrom that he'll understand some of the things that are going beyond, but uh, perhaps he's not fully prepared to understand all of them. Uh, Nevertheless, he goes on and teaches these beautiful doctrines that, again, um, show an assumption that Zeezrom can indeed repent and transform and that also provide us today and all future readers of Alma's words with these great doctrines. Uh, Elder Delaney Chokes once said, We teach and learn the mysteries of God by revelation from His Holy Spirit. If we harden our hearts to revelation and limit our understanding to what we can obtain by study and reason, we are limited to what Alma called the lesser portion of the world of the word. That's quite a fascinating perspective uh, when we think about the discipline and the rigor that accompany, accompany academic pursuits, the need for a Socratic sequence in teaching and learning, and the need for empirical evidence. What I think we might understand from this is that if we apply that exact same type of discipline and rigor to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to these mysteries, to these matters of faith, we are discounting the role of revelation and we are reducing the gospel of Jesus Christ to an ology, allowing it to take its place among any other field that ends with ology, O-L-O-G-Y, when in reality it's so much more and it's all-encompassing. And so perhaps this is what Alma understands when he says that some will only get the lesser portion of the word. Then verse 13, Then if our hearts have been hardened, yea, if we have hardened our hearts against the word, insomuch that it has not been found in us, Then will our state be awful, for then shall we be condemned. So it's here that we find this great scriptural pearl, I think, that Zeezrom has asked about judgment, and Alma is teaching him here 
that the word is the thing and our receptivity to the word is the thing. Our ability to continually repent and have our hearts to be soft and pliable is the thing that will allow this word to penetrate into our hearts and to actually be found in us. And having the word found in us seems ultimately to be the great issue as we stand before God in judgment. As we move further into Alma's teachings, we'll talk about this inevitable moment of standing before God in judgment. And it is at that point that we will truly hope that his word has been found in us. And we can think here of the parable of the sower. As the seed of the word has fallen upon us, hopefully it has taken root. Alma, of course, will have his own way of discussing this when he teaches the Zoramites in Alma chapter 32. So before we move further into that, here's something from McConkian Millet. Those who cry out, I have enough. Those who refuse to learn more. Those who are content to exist at their present level of light and truth. Who say essentially, thus far and no further. These shall live and die in ignorance of the mysteries of God and shall thereby subject themselves to the chains of hell. God is gracious. He provides for us that which we are willing and thus able to receive. So a connection between willingness and ultimately between willingness and ability. That's what they're making there. Now Alma will move into this striking description of what it will be like to stand before God one day. We will learn later in Alma chapter 36, as he speaks to his son Helaman, that here when Alma is teaching this to Zeezrom, he's actually speaking experientially. Now, we, we wouldn't know that if it wasn't for Alma chapter 36, although we could presume that because of what we learned about his experience in Mosiah chapter 27. In any event, uh, the teachings that he gives us here are key to our understanding of the experience of being judged by God and really possibly, I think, a key to understanding the pain that the Savior experienced and the nature of that pain uh, that he experienced as he stood in our stead and atoned for our sins, something that Alma discussed with the people of Gideon. He doesn't directly address that issue, but it's quite clear, I think, that the pain that we would experience where we wish that the mountains and rocks could fall upon us and hide us from his presence is the most agonizing and excruciating type of pain that we might uh, be called upon to endure and that we will indeed have to endure if the word is not found in us and must speak to the type of pain that the Savior faced on our behalf. So verse 14, for our words will condemn us. So now we're talking about our words. Uh, Alma has spoken in the previous verse about the word of God being found in us. So Interesting contrast there. For our words will condemn us, yea, all our works will condemn us. We shall not be found spotless, and our thoughts will also condemn us. And in this awful state, we shall not dare to look up to our God. And we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us to hide us from his presence. So this is a restatement, I think, of the terrible shame that one would feel in standing before God in the nakedness of his sins and I think speaks to scriptural nakedness versus scriptural clothing. And we can think about the way in which Adam and Eve stood before God in their shame after having transgressed. And Alma seems to be using different language to key into something very similar. And again, he'll return to it when he speaks to Helaman in Alma chapter 36. For now, here's something from the um, BYU Institute manual. Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught that the judgment 
is not merely a review of actions taken in mortality, but is instead an assessment of who and what we have become as a result of our actions. The prophet Nephi describes the final judgment in terms of what we have become. And if their works have been filthiness, they must needs be filthy. And if they be filthy, it must needs be that they cannot dwell in the kingdom of God. Moroni declares, He that is filthy shall be filthy still, and he that is righteous shall be righteous still. This same would be true. And by the way, uh, Elder Oaks has other references that go along. There are several in the Doctrine and Covenants and Book of Mormon that express this. Then he says, The same would be true of selfish or disobedient or any other personal attribute inconsistent with the requirements of God. Referring to the state of the wicked in the final judgment, Alma explains that if we are condemned by our words, our works, and our thoughts, we shall not be found spotless, and in this awful state we shall not dare to look up to our God. From such teachings we conclude that the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgment of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. That comes from a, a talk by Elder Oaks in November, excuse me, October of 2000 called The Challenge to Become. Bruce R. McConkie has written, In a real, though figurative sense, the book of life is the record of the acts of men as such is written in their own bodies. It is the record engraven on the very bones, sinews, and flesh of the mortal body. That is, every thought, word, and deed has an effect on the human body. All these leave their marks, marks which can be read by him who is eternal as easily as the words in a book can be read. Uh, Now this from Daniel Ludlow. Alma and Benjamin both state we shall be judged of our words, our works, and our thoughts. We can remember that King Benjamin said that in Mosiah chapter 4. Perhaps the most difficult area of judgment for people to understand is that which deals with our thoughts. Yet the Savior very clearly taught that we shall be responsible for what we think. And there Ludlow references Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 through 28. Where the Savior said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her already in his heart. I think I read already twice there. It only appears once in that verse. Then Ludlow continues, In addition to the Savior teaching this concept, this truth has also been taught by other prophets. And there he references First Chronicles, Job, uh, Psalm 94, and um, Paul in Romans 2, 16. Now this is from President David O. McKay in a conference report in April of 1956. We are spinning our own fates, good or evil, and never to be undone. Every smallest stroke of virtue or of vice leaves its ever so little scar. The drunken Rip Van Winkle in Jefferson's play excuses himself for every fresh dereliction by saying, I won't count it this time. Well, he may not count it, and a kind heaven may not count it, but it is being counted nonetheless. Down among his nerve cells and fibers, the molecules are counting it, registering and storing it up to be used against him when the next temptation comes. 
Nothing we ever do is, in strict scientific literalness, wiped out. Of course, this has its good side as well as its bad one. As we become permanent drunkards by so many separate drinks, so we become saints in the moral and authorities and experts in the practical and scientific spheres by so many separate acts and hours of work. Now, returning to Alma's words in the text here, as he has just talked about standing before God in in your shame and nakedness, he says in verse 15, But this cannot be. We must come forth and stand before him in his glory. Or in other words, it cannot be that we can hide ourselves under the rocks and the mountains. We must come forth and stand before him in his glory and in his power and in his might, majesty and dominion and acknowledge to our everlasting shame that all his judgments are just, that he is just in all his works and that he is merciful unto the children of men and that he has all power to save every man that believeth on his name and bringeth forth fruit meat for repentance. And now, behold, I say unto you, then cometh a death, even a second death, which is a spiritual death, Then is a time that whosoever dieth in his sins as to a temporal death shall also die a spiritual death. Yea, he shall die as to things pertaining unto righteousness. Now, of course, later in this chapter, Alma will talk about the space that's granted unto man that he might repent. And he's saying here that that space has come to an end. And then that will be the spiritual death that he's teaching of here. Richard Rust has written, It might be said that Alma is beyond eloquence, in that he strives for directness and simplicity. A judge himself, in teaching about judgment, Alma repeatedly sets forth alternatives. Give heed and diligence to the word, and eventually know the mysteries of God, or harden your heart and be taken captive by the devil. Believe, repent, and be saved, or die in your sins and then die a spiritual death. Do not provoke the Lord to pull down his wrath, but rather enter into the rest of the Lord, which is the phrase that Alma will use at the end of this chapter. Russ gives us a really wonderful thing to think about here as we think about Alma being in a, uh, a scenario uh, with his companion Amulek that's somewhat akin to being on a mission. And then, of course, he'll run into the sons of Mosiah, his dear friends, in Alma chapter 17, and, and they'll be so happy to be together. So we think of Alma and Amulek so much in a missionary context here. But Rust is reminding us here that before Alma stepped down and focused his efforts on uh, missionary work, He was the chief judge of all the land. He was the analog of the king of the land, of King Mosiah. And of course, the people of Ammonihah uh, reminded us earlier in chapter 8 of Alma that they were wise to that. They knew that he was no longer in power. But Alma most certainly has adjudicated in this capacity. He dealt with Nehor, and it must have been a very difficult situation. And then, of course, he dealt with Amlicai. So he understands judgment in a very unique way having been the leader of the entire land that he is now uh, moving about inside of and, and preaching the word of in this capacity. So now expanding on this idea of a spiritual death, Alma says in verse 17, Then is the time when their torments shall be as a lake of fire and brimstone, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. And then is the time that they shall be chained down to an everlasting destruction according to the power and captivity of Satan he having subjected them according to his will. And McConkie and Millet have said, the suffering to which the wicked are subjected takes place in the post-mortal spirit world. This is hell, both a place and a state of mind. Concerning hell as a state of mind, Joseph Smith explained, a man is his own tormentor and his own condemner. 
Hence the saying, They shall go into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The torment of disappointment in the mind of man is as exquisite as a lake burning with fire and brimstone. Then, as Alma continues, I say unto you, They shall be as though there had been no redemption made, for they cannot be redeemed according to God's justice, and they cannot die, seeing there is no more corruption. It's clear then, because of the way that Alma says this, that there was a redemption made. But for these people who do not avail themselves of it fully, it will ultimately be as though there had been no redemption made for them. Now Ogden and Skinner say this, and they quote from the talk that we read from previously from Elder Oaks, uh, The Challenge to Become. They say Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught that the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. I think I'll reread this even though I've read it um, earlier. It's just so powerful and prescient. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is as a plan or is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. Now, these are Alma's final words to Zeezrom before we shift as we come to verse 19 and Alma addresses Antiona, or first Antiona addresses him. So before we do that, I want to review uh, Alma chapter 36, verses 14 through 15, which I referred to earlier when Alma speaks to Helaman. And when we think about this feeling of wanting the mountains to fall upon us, to hide us from his presence, here's what Alma said to Helaman. Yea, and I had murdered many of his children, or rather, led them away unto destruction. Yea, and in fine, so great had been my iniquities that the very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. Now, Alma lived in a in an environment where there certainly were laws. So as far as him being a murderer, uh, we might think that that has reference to his uh, comments here when he talks about the second death, which is a spiritual death. Perhaps it's in that sense in particular that he's talking about murdering many of his children. Now verse 15, O thought I, that I could be banished and become extinct, both soul and body, that I might not be brought to stand in the presence of my God to be judged of my deeds. Again, there's no overt expression here, but I like to think about how Alma taught so insightfully to the people in the city of Gideon about the nature of the suffering of the Savior and how he experienced the whole range of human suffering. I like to think about that and know that he uh, understood a great deal about what it was that the Savior suffered when he atoned for us. And I have to wonder if this feeling of wishing that you could be extinct, both soul and body, and then multiplying that by an exponent of the infinity, is what the Savior experienced when he stood before God to be judged of our deeds because he did so vicariously. Interestingly, Revelation chapter 6, verse 16 says, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Ogden and Skinner end this block of commentary that I've been reading from by saying, The rebellious and wicked will everlastingly remain as though there had been no redemption made. Again, to quote from this verse we just read. In a state where they cannot die, that is, 
There is no annihilation or disintegration of resurrected perfected elements, so they remain in that unredeemed condition forever. Hell is both a place and state of mind. Well, we know that Zeezrom at this point was trembling, and now we find out how the people who were assembled responded to what Alma has said so far. Verse 19, Now it came to pass that when Alma had made an end of speaking these words, the people began to be more astonished. And now we move from Zeezrom to a new questioner, almost as though the legal process that is at play here is um, brushing Zeezrom aside since he hasn't succeeded in entrapping Alma and Amulek as he had anticipated. And now we're moving up the chain of command to Antiona. So perhaps that's what's happening here. Verse 20, But there was one Antiona, who was a chief ruler among them. He came forth and said unto him, I just want to add at this point too, that as we're talking about rank and, and a chief ruler among them, just consider again Alma and his station. He was the chief judge over the entire land not long before this incident. So Antiona, who was a chief ruler among them, came forth and said unto him, What is this that thou hast said, that man should rise from the dead and be changed from this mortal to an immortal state, that the soul can never die? What does the scripture mean, which saith that God placed cherubim and a flaming sword on the east of the Garden of Eden, lest our first parent should enter and partake of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever? And thus we see that there was no possible chance that they should live forever. Now it turns out that this is actually quite a good segue into what Alma wanted to explain next. And in fact, he even says in verse 22, this is the thing that I was about to explain. So again, Antiona's intentions here are unclear, but he nevertheless provides Alma with a needed segue, and Alma then wants to talk about this this space that's granted unto mankind uh, wherein he can repent. So he'll do that in just a moment. Because uh, Antiona has brought up this question about cherubim, uh, here's some commentary on this, first from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Cherubim are figures representing heavenly creatures, the exact form being unknown. They are found in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat of the ark. We can read of that in Exodus 25 and 1 Kings chapter 6 in Hebrews. And in the visions of Ezekiel, that's in Ezekiel chapter 10 and in chapter 11. In the account of the fall, cherubim are represented as keeping the way of the tree of life. Now, here's a piece of commentary from Reynolds and Sojal in their commentary on the Book of Mormon, which suggests that Antiona does have dark motives in answering the, or asking the question that he does of Alma here. They say Antiona thought he would make an irrefutable argument by asking Alma concerning the cherubim with the flaming sword. What Antiona made to appear as conflicting evidence was Alma's forthright declaration that through the atonement of Christ, all men, both righteous and wicked, would gain immortality and therefore live forever. Antiona quoted scripture to show that the reason God sent guardians to watch the tree of life was that our first parents should not enter Eden and partake of its fruit and live forever. But what Antiona failed to add to his harangue was that the Almighty would not have it that man should live forever in his sins. Now, of course, this is what Alma will go on to explain. And so he treats Antiona as though his motives are pure, it seems, which is quite a lesson for us, I think, in our gospel teaching. Verse 22, Now Alma said unto him, This is the thing which I was about to explain. 
Now we see that Adam did fall by the partaking of the forbidden fruit, according to the word of God, and thus we see that by his fall, all mankind became a lost and fallen people. I would add at this point that throughout this chapter, the the topical and logical flow that Alma follows uh, reads so well when we read all of these verses in succession. But of course, uh, in keeping with, with my approach to these readings, I want really to move from tree to tree instead of sometimes looking at the whole forest. And when we can pull off both, it's just great. But I kind of wish I was just progressing through these verses because of the way that they flow. But nevertheless, I really do want to add commentary as we go. So uh, Alma has just introduced this phrase, lost and fallen people. Daniel Judd has written, Ancient and modern prophets have taught that Adam and Eve's partaking of the forbidden fruit had, and continues to have, significant consequences. We know that the prophet Joseph Smith clearly acknowledged and taught of mankind's fallen nature. During a trip to New York City in October 1832, he wrote a letter to his wife Emma, in which in addition to describing the splendor of the city and the accomplishments of the people, he stated, The iniquity of the people is printed in every countenance, and nothing but the dress of the people makes them look fair and beautiful. All is deformity. There is something in every countenance that is disagreeable, with few exceptions. Now this from Robert J. Matthews. The matter of mankind having inherited the fall of Adam is a fundamental doctrine of the gospel, but to much of the traditional Christianity, it is a major stumbling block. Since about the 4th century, Catholic doctrine has held that because children inherit the fall from Adam, they are thus born in sin. This belief is based primarily on a misrepresentation of two verses from Romans, which read, quote, Wherefore, as one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. These verses were wrongly interpreted by Augustine and others to mean that all mankind sinned in Adam, and that therefore children are born in original sin. This resulted in the development of the practice of infant baptism, since infants were considered legally to be sinners by inheritance. Some today, not feeling comfortable with this traditional Christian doctrine of the depravity of children, have rejected the concept of the fall altogether, and so speak glowingly of the inherent goodness of man. Either extreme position does not accurately represent the teachings of the scriptures, especially the teachings of the Book of Mormon. The restored gospel takes a position between the two extremes, not denying either, but showing how the matter is handled by the atonement. The correct doctrine is that mankind has inherited the effects of the fall, but not the sin associated with it. There is a great difference between inheriting only the results or effects of the sin and in inheriting the sin itself. Since they only inherit its effects, little children have no accountability or responsibility for original sin. Thus, because of the atonement of Christ, babies are born innocent so far as the law of God is concerned. But babies inherit the effects of the fall inasmuch as they are out of the presence of God and are subject to physical death. All human beings, though innocent at birth, are destined to die. They cannot prevent it. Nor can they reclaim even one soul from death after it has occurred. Little children are not subject to death because of any sin of their own. It is a biological inheritance from Adam. Even Adam himself was not held responsible for his original transgression in the Garden of Eden. 
Yet the results and effects of that sin passed upon him when he entered mortality to exactly the same extent that they pass upon each of us as an inheritance from Adam. In mortality, Adam was in just the same condition as we are. The atonement automatically covered the transgression which brought the fall, and Adam was held responsible to repent only for the transgressions he may have committed when in mortality. Now verse 23, And now behold, I say unto you, that if it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at that time, there would have been no death, and the word would have been void, making God a liar. For he said, If thou eat, thou shalt surely die. Now to this I would add that we can imagine this image of Adam perhaps wanting to partake of the the tree of life at this point. Uh, In other words, the, the idea that Adam would have partaken of the tree of life at all after he had fallen shows that this tree is very desirable. If its characteristics in this uh, doctrine that Alma is teaching are consistent with the tree of life that is described in Lehi's vision, or the tree of life as it is described at the very end of the book of Revelation, we can guess that Adam left something extremely desirable when he had fallen and would have longed from that point forward to have partaken again of the fruit of the tree of life, and all that it symbolically means, of course, which is to reattain the presence of God. So that's something to ponder. Now, verse 24, And we see that death comes upon mankind. Yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. The Book of Mormon Institute manual has taught this. The term probationary state or probationary time is a phrase used only by Alma in the Book of Mormon. We also see it in Alma chapter 42. Uh, Elder L. Tom Perry of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles described this probationary time, quote, The main purpose of earth life is to allow our spirits, which existed before the world was, to be united with our bodies for a time of great opportunity in mortality. The association of the two together has given us the privilege of growing, developing, and maturing, as only we can with the spirit and body united. With our bodies we pass through a certain amount of trial in what is termed a probationary state of our existence. This is a time of learning and testing to prove ourselves worthy of eternal opportunities. It is all part of a divine plan our Father has for His children. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written this in Christ and the New Covenant. The word probation is found only ten times in the standard works, and nine of those references are in the Book of Mormon. What an essential doctrine in understanding the fall and the atonement. A doctrine of prolonged opportunity for mortal men and women in which the gospel can be taught to and accepted by them. In this term of mortal probation, whatever period that may be after eight years of age until the day of death, we have the teachings of the gospel and the commandments of God to guide our time of testing. Now, as Alma continues in verse 25, If it had not been for the plan of redemption, which was laid from the foundation of the world, there could have been no resurrection of the dead. But there was a plan of redemption laid, which shall bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, of which has been spoken. And now, behold, if it were possible that our first parents could have gone forth and partaken of the tree of life, they would have been forever miserable, having no preparatory state, 
and thus the plan of redemption would have been frustrated and the word of God would have been void, taking none effect. So Adam and Eve, as much as they may have wanted to once they fell, it's for their good that they can no longer partake of the tree of life. And then they will follow this tortuous, mortal path that all of us must follow, that really I think it's what the exile pattern in the scriptures, and of course the archetypal exile pattern that we see with the children of Israel in the book of Exodus, that that all is a type of our exile from this tree and the journey that we undertake to someday return to that tree. It's quite interesting then that we symbolically as readers leave that tree with Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis and then finally with the Apostle John at the very end of the Bible, at the end of the New Testament, we attain unto that same tree, finally. In an interesting way, I think that makes a reading of the entire Bible also akin to or a type of our mortal probation, our exile from the presence of God, or in other words, our journey from the tree with Adam and Eve and our reattainment to it later. Here's some summarizing commentary from Ogden and Skinner that will uh, cover some of the things that we've covered before, but I still want to read it here. They say cherubim is a plural Hebrew word referring to angelic sentinels placed in the Garden of Eden to guard the way of the tree of life. A flaming sword, the exact nature and description of which are not given in the scriptures, was also put in position to keep Adam and Eve from partaking of the fruit of that tree and living forever in a sinful condition. The biblical account gives no specific reason for these guardian agents being employed, but Alma chapter 12 verses 22 through 26 teaches that it was essential to keep the first fallen mortals from partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, representing immortality and eternal life, of course, in order to experience this preparatory and probationary state, death, resurrection from death, and the full benefits of the plan of redemption. According to verse 30, this plan of redemption was known and accepted before we ever came to earth and is granted to us here as we exercise faith, repent, and do holy works. Now, verse 27, But, behold, it was not so, but it was appointed unto men that they must die, and after death they must come to judgment, even that same judgment of which we have spoken, which is the end. So, Antonia, excuse me, Antiona, I think is getting a lot more than he bargained for when he answered this question, no matter what his intentions were. So this is from Elder D. Todd Christofferson. He says, Among the most significant of Jesus Christ's descriptive titles is Redeemer. The word redeem means to pay off an obligation or a debt. Redeem can also mean to rescue or set free as by paying a ransom. If someone commits a mistake and then corrects it or makes amends, we say that he has redeemed himself. Each of these meanings suggests different facets of the great redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ through his atonement, which includes, in the words of the dictionary, to deliver from sin and its penalties as by a sacrifice made for the sinner. Verse 28, And after God had appointed that these things should come unto man, behold, then he saw that it was expedient that man should know concerning the things whereof he had appointed unto them. Therefore, he sent angels to converse with them, who caused men to behold of his glory. So in other words, I think we can see that if the Lord is going to provide man, which he did, with a probationary state, a space in which they might repent, then he'll also provide them with messengers that will teach them his gospel. 
So verse 29, Therefore he sent angels to converse with them, who caused men to behold of his glory. And they began from that time forth to call on his name. Therefore God conversed with men, and made known unto them the plan of redemption, which had been prepared from the foundation of the world. And this he made known unto them according to their faith and repentance and their holy works. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, I think there are at least two ways to read that phrase from Alma, that God conversed with men. One way is to note that angels came first, and then, with men thus spiritually prepared, God conversed directly with them. But another way is to see those phrases as synonym, as synonymous, that when God sent angels to converse with mortals, he was speaking to them, just as if he personally were there doing so. Of course, the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants kind of confirms that notion. In fact, I, I shouldn't call it a notion. I should call it a doctrine. And that's verse 38 of section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which says, What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but it shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. Now, the servants in this context of Alma's teachings can be on either side of the veil, it seems. They can be angels. And, of course, that's something that Elder Holland has taught about very eloquently before. And I think just a couple chapters back, I read commentary. I think it was probably uh, with Alma chapter 8 from Elder Holland when he talked about the visitation of the angel to Alma that sent him back to the city of Ammonihah and how Elder Holland talked about these angels coming from both sides of the veil. Now, verse 31, Alma says, Wherefore, he gave commandments unto men. They having first transgressed his the first commandments as to things which were temporal, and becoming as gods, knowing good from evil, placing themselves in a state to act, or being placed in a state to act according to their wills and pleasures, whether to do evil or to do good. So we can see from this that this agency makes us as gods. It is a godly act to know good from evil and to be in a state to act freely in this way. Yet, of course, the great conundrum for us is that we don't yet have that godly capacity to do so unerringly and always choose the good. And therefore, we need this great plan of redemption to, to come into play for us so that we can avail ourselves of the mediating influence of Jesus Christ. Verse 32, Therefore God gave unto them commandments, after having made known unto them the plan of redemption, that they should not do evil, the penalty thereof being a second death, which was an everlasting death as to things pertaining unto righteousness, for on such the plan of redemption could have no power, for the works of justice could not be destroyed according to the supreme goodness of God. Alma teaches some pretty audacious things, or at least uses kind of audacious verbiage. I remember as a teenager reading Alma 42 and having him say that God would cease to be God under these certain conditions and thinking, how, how could Alma say such a thing? Really, he's saying something audacious like that here as well, where he says that the plan of redemption could have no power. Now, how, how can he say that uh, without having it minimize the saving and salvific power of the atoning one, of the great Redeemer, Jesus the Christ? Well, the answer, of course, is that agency remains in effect for all of us and that we are all sovereign and that that sovereignty or that ability to choose freely as agents will not be violated even by this great master of salvation, Jesus the Christ. And so if we do not willingly accept, let earth receive their king. If we do not accept 
the redemption of Jesus Christ through our own agency and embrace his gospel by entering into covenants with him and then yoking ourselves with him and walking along that covenant path, continually repenting and changing and allowing the word to become more a part of us, then that redemption could have no power. So that's what Alma's teaching here. This is from the uh, Book of Mormon Institute manual. President Boyd K. Packer, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, taught that knowledge of God's plan provides answers to difficult questions. Speaking to teachers of youth, he said, Young people wonder why. Why are we commanded to do some things, and why are we commanded not to do other things? A knowledge of the plan of happiness, even in outline form, can give your minds a why. Most of the difficult questions we face in the church right now, and we could list them, abortion and all the rest of them, all of the challenges of who holds the priesthood and who does not, cannot be answered without some knowledge of the plan as a background. Alma said this, and this is, I think of late, my favorite scripture, although I change now and again. Quote, God gave unto them commandments after having made known unto them the plan of redemption. Unquote. And of course, that's Alma chapter 12, verse 32. If you are trying to give students a why, follow that pattern. God gave unto them commandments after having made known unto them the plan of redemption. Here's something that President Packer taught on another occasion. The plan presupposes mistakes. Under the plan, penalties connected with bad choices, our sins, may be canceled on condition that we keep the commandments which activate the influence of the atonement. We are commanded to do some things, and we are commanded not to do others, in order to merit the redeeming power of that sacrifice, the atonement of Christ. The choice is ours. Alma said, God gave unto them commandments after having made known unto them the plan of redemption. Now, Alma continues in verse 33 as he's been talking about servants in the form of angels that will teach the plan of redemption. But God did call on men in the name of his son, this being the plan of redemption which was laid, saying, If you will repent and harden not your hearts, then will I have mercy upon you through mine only begotten. Now, remember that Alma previously talked about hardening one's heart against the word as it falls upon them. Well, here's the full context. It's the plan of redemption that will fall upon us as seeds. And uh, what ground we are depends on how much we will repent and harden not our hearts. Then the word can be found in us. Verse 34, Therefore, whosoever repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy through mine only begotten Son unto a remission of his sins, and these shall enter into my rest. Now, this is an intensely personal statement made by Alma here. And again, we only know of that because of what he tells Helaman later in Alma chapter 36. It's here where he tells Helaman how much he wanted to claim mercy uh, through mine only begotten son, as he says here. Have claim on his mercy. Um, And he says, when he speaks to Helaman, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. Then he goes on to tell Helaman, that when he thought this, he could remember his pains no more. So again, very personal for Alma, talking about claiming the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows it's something that Zeezrom can do. He knows it's something that even Antiona can do. It's something that he has done as well. 
This name title, Only Begotten Son, that is used in this verse, gives us the opportunity to focus in on that for a moment. This comes from Thomas Arvaleta. Begotten means to be born. To beget is to give birth, to procreate, or to call into being. In the scriptures, these words are often used to mean being born of God. Although Jesus Christ is the only child begotten of the Father in mortality, all people may be spiritually begotten of Christ by accepting him, obeying his commandments, and becoming new persons through the power of the Holy Ghost. And there, uh, Valletta is pulling uh, from Guide to the Scriptures under the entry, Begotten. Now, Alma will contrast this as we come to verse 35, again, as he's talking about those who soften their heart and repent and those who harden. So verse 35, And whosoever will harden his heart and will do iniquity, behold, I swear in my wrath that he shall not enter into my rest. So Alma is raising the stakes, essentially. Earlier he talked about how you would not um, know more of the word, but instead you'd be relegated to knowing a lesser portion of his word. But now he's making it clear that the ultimate end for having one's heart hard and not allowing that word to enter their souls and to grow and take root in them and have it ultimately be found in them in judgment will be that they shall not enter into the rest of the Lord, which is a concept that he will repeat uh, two verses later, and if I remember right, we'll also have an opportunity to talk about entering into the rest of the Lord in the next chapter. So verse 36, And now, my brethren, behold, I say unto you that if you will harden your hearts, ye shall not enter into the rest of the Lord. Therefore your iniquity provoketh him that he sendeth down his wrath upon you, as in the first provocation. So first provocation, we can think about the children of Israel in the Sinai Peninsula, and how it is that the first generation of those who wandered were not allowed to enter the land of Canaan under eventually under Joshua's leadership. Interesting, too, here that Alma is saying, enter into the rest of the Lord, because that's really tantamount to being able to once again partake of the tree. And remember, the drama of this chapter is that we're seeing that Adam and Eve are no longer able to partake of that tree. And we are Adam and Eve, and our ultimate uh, hope is, is to partake of that tree again, which is the equivalent of this language here when it says, enter into the rest of the Lord. Then he says, yea, according to his word in the last provocation, as well as the first, to the everlasting destruction of your souls, therefore according to his word unto the last death, as well as the first. And now, my brethren, seeing we know these things and they are true, let us repent and harden not our hearts, We provoke not the Lord our God to pull down his wrath upon us in these his second commandments, which he has given unto us. But let us enter into the rest of God, which is prepared according to his word. So the first provocation, the first death, and then he's talking about the second death. And presumably that's why he uses the phrase second provocation here. Now this from Ogden Skinner. After our original parents transgressed the first commandments, partaking of the forbidden fruit, which necessitated their expulsion from Eden, God gave more commandments, laws, ceremonies, and ordinances, by which to live, and mortals became as gods, knowing good from evil. Having choices, they learned whether to do evil or to do good. God's commandments directing them to avoid evil and thus avoid the second death, the permanent expulsion from the presence of God after the last and great judgment. Notice that the commandments were given after God had first taught Adam and Eve the plan of redemption. The specifics, the do's and don'ts, followed the explanation of the larger picture, the plan. 
Thus, teachers and leaders today are well advised to teach the doctrinal foundation first with the end in view, then the specific ethical components, the do's and don'ts, to show how they fit into the plan. Verses 33-37 teach us to repent, lay claim on the Savior's mercy, have our sins remitted, and enter into His rest, which can also be expressed, as Ogden and Skinner say here, as the fullness of His glory. Uh, which is in Doctrine and Covenants 84, verse 24. And I would add, too, that's certainly related to sitting on the throne of God with him again and being reconciled, which means to sit with again. Then Ogden Skinner continued, The key to achieving that fullness of glory is noted in every one of those five verses, not to harden your heart, but to keep it soft, pliable, and receptive. The first provocation was the transgression of Adam and Eve. The last provocation is our own. And if we harden our hearts, the consequence is the everlasting destruction of our souls. So I think as I read that, I stand corrected. Uh, As as I read first provocation before, I connected it to the provocation in the days of the wilderness, which has been referred to earlier in the Book of Mormon, uh, with reference to the children of Israel in Sinai and how they uh, had to wait uh, to go Uh, back into Canaan under Joshua's leadership. But that was the provocation in the days of the wilderness. And Ogden and Skinner are making it clear here that the first provocation was the transgression of Adam and Eve. And then, as Alma says, the last provocation will be our own, and it will be connected to a second death if we harden our hearts. And ultimately, our souls are destroyed, and it will be as though there was no redemption made. So this brings us to the end then of these incredible teachings. And as we turn the page and go to Alma chapter 13, Alma will continue to teach doctrines that are connected to this plan of redemption. And he will anchor this receipt of the atoning power of the Redeemer. He will anchor that concept to the concept of entering into covenant with him and show that that practice has been entered into as a function of the priesthood of the Holy Order of God ever since the foundation of the world. So as we cite our minds forward in the next chapter, we're really looking back to the pre-earth life and this realm that we lived in there, and he will show that that is a constant, and that is the way that we avail ourselves fully of the atoning power of Jesus Christ. It is by entering into covenants with him and allowing him to lead us along that straight and narrow path. Well, this brings us to the end then of Alma chapter 12. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.